Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Woo. Welcome to the jungle, guys. Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> the Amazonian jungle where, piranha when did where did it take place it was well that was the whole thing is it's like those fish aren't from these parts right, but now right. they're water resistant or cold water <laughs> they're water resistant, resistant yeah. fish these water resistant <laughs> piranhas anyway let's backtrack hey guys we did piranha <laughs> we watched the movie piranha yeah, from not, 1978 yeah 1978 not, not oh, piranha 3d not piranha 3 D. <laughs> But the original Piranha. Right. Well, we've had all of these great movies from this era, all <laughs> yeah, of these right. delightful remakes. And this was one of those that was a B-movie from the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it's it was a rough go for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, it, yeah, because we were like, well, well, like Body Snatchers was yeah. from that era. You yeah. know, the all thing, movies like are all just those movies are cool. <laughs> and you're Piranha like, must be. Yeah. But no, it was budget was like a half a million dollars. The gross was over sixteen million dollars. So ah, like it okay. did really well for them. Wow. But wait, oh, let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. Who could have imagined they were there? Who could have predicted they would attack? And now, who would survive? Piranha. Keep your hand out of the water. What's wrong with the water? The water is filled with carnivorous fish. Piranha. They call them the devil fish because wherever they go, hell waits below. These are the man-eaters who go beyond the bite of all other jaws. Sharks come alone. Piranha come in thousands. <laughs> Whoa, man. That's that's something else. Talk about movie boys. Nothing oh, like the yeah. 70s movie boys, right? Well, Spielberg called this the best of the Jaws ripoffs. Sure. And as you can see, like, they're not even pretending. Oh, unabashedly. Like, you know how scary Jaws was? What if there were several thousand little <laughs> yeah. tiny Jaws? This was produced by Roger Corman, who's, like, famous for B-horror movies mm. of this type and, oh. like, was very successful in making a lot of really low-budget stuff. It's where... James Cameron got his start. Joe Dante directed this movie, and he went on to make Gremlins, Ooh. Inner Space, and The Burbs. Oh, of course. As well as a bunch but, of other movies. That's Tom Hanks? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Burbs? The Burbs. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Well, and again, like you were saying, it did quite well, all things considered, because there's mm. not much practical effectage happening here, except for like no. some little plastic piranha taped to a stick that they were just like moving around like... <laughs> Yeah, just really fast jamming them into people. It's just, oh God, fast jams. Well, that's what this movie wants you to, wants there to be, right? You just jam into each other. Yeah, you're just, you're at the drive in and you're like, oh, look, they're naked in the water. Yeah, it's like, oh. They're going to get bitten, all those tiny little teeth. Oh, I'm scared for the piranha. Let me hold on to you. Oh, God. It's definitely built for you to mostly not pay attention and mostly be making it. Right. And okay, so the the idea was like the, these piranhas, they were this like, killer strain of carnivorous fish that are mutant and poison resistant and that kind of thing right Mm -hmm. and that's how they end up here do you know anything about piranhas 
I researched a little bit. I yeah. mean, I only knew the obvious. They right. have teeth and they eat right. people. That they're famous for their razor sharp teeth mm-hmm. and that probably just because of this movie we're like, oh man, those guys are assholes. Yeah. Like, it turns out there's approximately 20 species of piranha found living in the Amazon River with only four or five of them posing any danger. So most of the piranha species are pretty docile and mm-hmm. don't really fuck with you. But the, the, the one with the nasty reputation is called the red-bellied piranha or pygocentris naturari. I believe you. The extreme question mark on the end of that tells you how confident I am about that pronunciation. The pronunciation, yeah. So, like, baby piranha will feast on tiny crustaceans and fruits and seeds and Mm. basically whatever they can. But then once they reach about one and a half inches long, then they start feeding on the fins and flesh of other fish that, like, get too close. Ooh. Yeah. I read this story that may be, like, kind of the origins of modern view of a frenzy of piranha. So Teddy Roosevelt visited Brazil in 1913, and he went on a hunting expedition into the Amazon. And while standing on the bank of an Amazon river, he witnessed this crazy spectacle that the local fishermen had created for him. Yeah. Basically, the fishermen had blocked off a part of the river and starved piranhas for several days. Oh, God. And then they pushed a cow into the water where it was just torn apart and skeletonized by these school of like super hungry piranha. And Teddy Roosevelt was like, whoa, look at these things. And he like wrote about them in this book and was like, yeah. And so that image that people kind of have like from the movies and stuff of them in a frenzy kind of comes from this forced situation that. Well, first of all, starving them is not a good, I mean, yeah, that's clearly more of a spectacle. But when they start getting all ravenous, that's why like the the water churns Mm -hmm. with blood and all this stuff. And, you know, visually it is pretty horrifying yeah. <laughs> like i was reading that they have these crazy strong jaw muscles mm. and i had separately read that alligators have really strong closing jaw muscles mm. but they actually have really weak opening their jaw muscles right so if you're getting that. yeah if you're like getting around an alligator you're getting attacked and you have like the balls to yeah. grab its mouth and hold its mouth shut mm-hmm. it like won't be able to open its mouth and snap down on that's you that's interesting because you see a lot of these like fucking alligator wrestlers or whatever they do right. that it's like a really small amount of pressure that you right. would need to hold it closed it's like well, a little rubber nice. band yeah but then on the other hand it's like, like a mousetrap mm-hmm, chopping wow. down is so severe that's crazy so like I said they adult piranha will basically eat anything they've, they've also been known mm-hmm. to eat their own babies because they get imagine if you're in this crazy school of, of piranha you don't that know going, what you're biting yeah you're just like <laughs> you end up eating your buddies but you're like i'm sorry I just oh, got shit got real in there serious munchies but then also like sickly cattle that have been they're stooping their little heads down to drink water they oftentimes get pulled in which alligators do this similarly right yeah but this but they is get the pulled thing. in by piranha yeah by their mouth and nose if they're Whoa. if they're like fucked up if they're old or sickly and weak uh-huh. i'm not saying that like one piranha could take them down but if you're already right. stooped below and then you're like oh my center of gravity's off <laughs> yeah. and then you get it and then before they know it then you have them stripping your flesh off whole cow it's fucking crazy but like you said within minutes that's what's so absurd about it yeah. i watched a video of a guy putting a dead duck into a, a pool with piranhas and it was yeah within moments its whole head oh was God. all like down to the skull it was gnarly uh, but at least it was dead it's important to remember that piranha are just a part of the checks and balances <laughs> that mother nature employs because yeah. you know you think about like piranha feeding on young herons or young caimans with the small alligators that are are too small to fight them away mm-hmm. but then when the floodplains of the amazon go dry during the dry season the piranha are stranded in these like isolated little lagoons where they die from lack of oxygen and then the herons eat them and the caimans eat them and so it's all part of the circle of life so all right. it's brutal like most of 
nature. Most right? of nature. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching that that life documentary oh, yeah. series yeah, on yeah. Netflix, and it's one of those. I was like, ah, oh, it's so beautiful. But they had like the most horrifying animal attacks because you're yeah. like, that's it's they don't. It's not like a beautiful little like oh, just going to sleep and then I'll eat you. Right. It's like you have to destroy your prey and it well, sucks. And I don't yeah, watch. I mean, it is funny to think about like the abstraction of the supermarket. And us being like, no, 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 we're not, we're not murderizing. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know. Oh, well, we've talked about that, like our relationship with food or lack thereof for right. a long time. It's yeah, like yeah, if yeah. you had to go out and, you know, decapitate a fucking chicken every time you wanted lunch, right. you might feel a little bit differently. But Or, or you, you might to, care very teeth. less about those chickens, actually. If how you, so? Because every day you're like desensitized to it and you're like, this is how I eat. Huh. Well... Maybe, but at the same time, that suggests that, like, because do you just have this endless amount of chickens? <laughs> Usually, you know what I mean? Like, when people have farms, it's like, right. it's a little bit, it's just not yeah, nearly to the yeah, scale get, of, yeah, that it'll is be different. like, here's the weekly chicken roast, as opposed to every day being like, fried chicken, please. Yeah, yeah. On the topic of crazy fish, <laughs> you may have heard of this thing called the vampire fish, or kandiru. It's known as the toothpick fish. Or vampire fish, as I said a second ago. <laughs> it's a species of parasitic freshwater catfish found in the Amazon. They can grow up to 16 inches long, sometimes a lot smaller. And they're thought to sniff out human pee. And if you pee, it'll swim up the stream straight into your urethra. And since it has backward pointing spines right. like a porcupine, it sticks inside your, your dick or your, your... I've heard tales. And yeah, looking into this, there's actually only one documented case of a kanduru entering a human urethra okay and this happened in 1997 now there were like legends of it happening before mm -hmm. that like this has been around for mm -hmm. like at least a couple hundred years but the, the only documented case was in 1997 legends of the dickfish <laughs> yeah, exactly well i guess they used to like wear like cups in the water and stuff <laughs> they would like try to like protect their junk right. well it only takes one story one yeah. case before of a you're fish. like you know what <laughs> I'm not taking the risk. This is a fact. <laughs> but yeah, there like there's a bunch about the story that's been blown up to be bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. The man who had it in his dick claimed that it jumped from the water into his urethra as he urinated in thigh deep water. So part of the legend is that it can swim up your pee stream even if you're not like submerged in the water there is a lot going on with this story now First that's of all okay, go, that's not your, true oh, but obviously. Go, yeah 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 come on it just <laughs> like further than just the idea of being like it's swimming up like a how big is your stream of pee b how mm -hmm. big is your goddamn urethra oh yeah that's a small little tube. it's a tube it's a small tube but <laughs> i guess it can, like, if it's got like a like a needle nose it oh, can just right in and then those spikes Fuck. Yeah. Okay. It's not a, not a real case, though. Did well, it happen? It did happen that this guy actually did get it up his urethra. So, like, the, it's definitely true that this did happen at least once. I think the guy put it in his fucking you, urethra. <laughs> no. At least, like, yeah. hey, man, you, you, I bet you're not going to swim up my dick. Yeah. Like, put it or nearby. Who like it's fucking jackass. knows? Like, he was doing something weird and then was like, oh, how do I explain myself? Yeah. And it's like, like, it I, jumped I got, up <laughs> out of the stream. You know, I got my dick caught in the whatever, X, Y, or Z. Take the, your pick of the things that guys have just put their dick into that they couldn't get it out of what mm. if they he put something in there he could it very easily could have been that and then he was like well there's a legend of it swimming up <laughs> right. streams and so Our maybe dick. we should it, they even since have like studied the fish and it, i guess it's not even attracted by urine it mm -hmm. hunts via sight 
Because one of the legends is like, if you pee anywhere near it, it's going to sniff it out and it's going to come running. It's going to come <laughs> swimming right up that dick. I See, I always thought that this was a case of there's just so many crazy creatures in the Amazonian jungle that if you are anywhere, you're probably going to get something inside your dick. Right. Did not know the details of it being like, oh, it smells that pee-pee. And yeah. Specifically human pee-pee and loves to go up your urethra. Yeah, I, I heard a statistic, I don't know what you would call this, an <laughs> apocryphal statistic? I, I don't know. But the odds of someone being attacked by a kandiru while urinating fully submerged in a stream where they live is the same as the odds of someone being struck by lightning while also being eaten by a shark. Two unlikely things. <laughs> yeah, two very unlikely things. <laughs> together at Even last. more unlikely together. So people don't have to wear cups. We can alleviate some of the fear right. of dick fish. So, yeah, you were saying that piranha in the movie were, like, being bombarded with things to make them hardier. Was that pretty much? Yeah, I mean, you know, they were blah, 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 science, science. They were made to be resistant to, yeah. So, last week, I was talking about the biggest single-celled organism ever. And I mentioned this algae that's common to aquariums that looks kind of like a fern, but it's actually one giant cell called C. taxifolio. Right. And I learned more about it. It's actually the result of human interference like the Africanized killer bee. Mm. So in the 1970s, a German aquarium acquired some of the algae in order to breed it to be used in aquariums around the world. And they exposed it to harsh chemicals, mutation-inducing UV light, selectively cultivated it to be hardier, faster growing, and better able to grow in cold water. Mm. In 1980, they were satisfied with their product and generously distributed it to aquariums across Europe. So four years after they distributed the finished product, some of the cold water strain escaped from an aquarium in Monaco. Now it's on the list of the world's 100 worst invasive species, which is compiled by the IUCN, which is the International Union for Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources. Mm-hmm. Within years of the escape, it had overrun the entire Mediterranean Sea. Oh, God. Compared to the natural version of it, the mutated strain is bigger, grows faster, and more aggressively, it can survive pollution. It's capable of regenerating from fragments as small as one centimeter. It's also toxic, and we can't get rid of it. Fuck. And now we're just trying to stop it from spreading further. Like, we're not even trying to get rid of it anymore. And because of this, it's earned the nickname Killer Algae. And yeah, the biggest single-celled organism in the world is fucking taking over these oceans. But as a result of our interference? Of our interference. Because a German aquarium was like, we want this to be like the the aquarium plant. And then it escaped back into the wild and... Oh, man. Oh, man. It's like Mimic all over again. It's like Piranha all over Uh, again. (laughs) You know how in the movie they're this like secret, top secret area. It's all protected by electric fences. Mm -hmm. And these kids are like, fuck it. I'm going to go in there and swim naked. Who cares? Yeah. (laughs) Abandoned military facility. That's where I like to skinny dip. Totally. Oh, God. And this murky water that I don't know if it's like stagnant malaria water. (laughs) Anyway, so I was just looking into how electric fences work and sort of the history of that shit. So I know you're not supposed to whiz on them. Right. D- what? Don't whiz, whiz on the electric fence. Because it'll shock you. Because it'll shock you. <laughs> yeah. Ren and Like Snippy. just regular electricity, guys. Yep. But basically, the way an electric fence works is that an electric fence energizer converts mains or battery power into a high voltage pulse or shock, then releases that shock onto an insulated fence line about once every second. The pulse itself is pretty short. It's only like 150 microseconds long. Mm. But when an animal touches an electric fence, the current flows from the energizer down the fence line and through the animal and then 
flows through the earth back to the ground system and completes the circuit. So obviously it's the shock that deters the animal from touching it. Uh-huh. It's more of a psychological barrier than anything because the pain is very short-lived. Right. It doesn't like fuck up the animal. So it's not like continuously electrified though. Exactly. It's like these little short it's a little, like, I beep, never knew that. Beep, right. I, cool. I totally thought that as long as you hold it. Well, if you hold it, if you put your arm on it, you're probably going to rest yeah. it for like more than one second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it sounds to me like it's just like zap, zap, mm. going to keep zapping you until you stop. But you know, it doesn't cause mm. any like extensive physical damage so it's a lot better than like barbed wire for example that can cause severe cuts and if you're raising cattle for leather then it can cut the hide Uh, all of that kind of bullshit but the idea of electric fences as as a defense mechanism was referenced as early as 1832 there was there was this book called domestic manners of the americans by fanny trollope and it describes (laughs) an arrangement of wires connected with an electrical machine used to protect and display in the western museum of natural history in cincinnati oh like don't touch our display we'll shock the fuck out of you (laughs) and then like in that book 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870, they described the use of electrification as a defense weapon. They, they call it the lightning bolts of Captain Nemo. Ooh. And even Mark Twain referenced it in his novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which I mostly was interested to know, like, was that the prototype for a kid in King Arthur's Court? <laughs> I'm assuming it is. <laughs> is the kid the Connecticut yeah. Yankee? Yeah. What's the name? What's the modern name for Connecticut Yankee? <laughs> hey, it's a kiddo. Kid. <laughs> yeah. It's a kid. So I just thought that was interesting, the idea of, of that being used as defense as opposed to, you know, protecting cattle. As defense. Yeah. Because it was a fence, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, why <laughs> like, are you being such she... an asshole right now? <laughs> Wait, did you say that some one of these people's name was like Fanny Trollope? Was that, yeah. did I catch that? Oh, I think it's probably Trollope because okay. it's it's the word troll with Fanny O-P-E. Trollope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> little Fanny Trollope over here. Trollope. Trollope. Who knows? <laughs> well, I guess it makes sense that like, so it started in art museums to like. Yeah, it was a it was a Western Museum of Natural History. Oh. Okay. But, okay, so the first time that it was, it was practically used was in 1886. This guy, David H. Wilson, obtained a patent for something that was meant to com- combine protection, an alarm bell, and telephone communications. Whoa. <laughs> Real, uh. Okay. Jack of all trades there. So he constructed Man an of the times. Yeah. He constructed a, an experimental thirty mile electric fence energized by a water wheel in Texas in eighteen eighty eight, but it wasn't successful. And then like in the, the Russo Japanese war in nineteen oh five, the the Russians improvised electric fences, but it wasn't until nineteen fifteen, the first world war, where the German army installed the quote wire of death. Mm. And that basically consisted of a series of electrified fences along the border between Belgium and the Netherlands. And it can they consisted of several strands of copper wire backed with barbed wire and then energized to several thousand volts so an estimated 3,000 human fatalities were caused by the fence as well as the destruction of livestock so what was meant to just deter people from you know crossing the border ended up killing a lot of people isn't that nuts and then so like people who are dead can't even go back and be like don't touch that fence right That's right, Jeff. <laughs> Dead men so more tell and more, no they tales. They told no tales of, of electrified, electrified fences. fences. It's not like at the time there was signage or anything right, like that. So right. people are like, nah, it's just a fence. Not right. expecting it. it. It certainly wasn't a little like tight little love tap. It yeah. was, you know. Then to think about how it was then manifested to protect livestock, that started happening in the early 1930s in both the, the U.S. and New Zealand. So it like 1936, 1936. <laughs> New Zealand inventor Bill Gallagher, he built a 
fence from his car ignition trembler coil. A trembler coil is just was part of ignitions in early cars, okay. basically. But he used that to keep his horse from scratching itself against his car. So then, <laughs> in ni- then in 1962, another New Zealand inventor guy invented the non-shortable electric fence, which is more like what we use today. And that was based on capacitor discharge. When I saw the phrase capacitor discharge, I was like, what the fuck is capacitor discharge? <laughs> and then I was like, what the fuck is a capacitor? So I realized I had to do a little side dive. Are you, do you want to learn what a, what capacitor discharge is? Absolutely. I cool. do. I assume it was a capacitor discharges for dummies. Search. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. So capacitors, they're sometimes known as condensers. They're just energy storing devices, hmm. sort of like a battery, like but a little bit different. Hmm. I'll explain why, but they're basically, they're made by taking two electrical conductors. Conductors are the things that electricity flows through. They're also known as plates. Those plates are wired to two electrical connections on the outside of the capacitor called terminals. They're, they look like these thin little metal legs that you can actually hook into an electrical circuit. Okay. What's between that is the insulator. That's material that electricity doesn't flow through very well. So to give you a visual, just think of a little tiny little corn on the cob holder. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about? yeah. Those with the two little the stickies. Two, yeah. Yeah, prongs. Yeah. So mm. they're they look like that. And like I said, they're a little bit like a battery, but whereas a battery uses chemicals to store electrical energy and release it very slowly over time capacitors release it much more rapidly often in seconds or less so think about flash photography for example you need a capacitor to produce a huge burst of light in a fraction of seconds so the capacitor is attached to the flash gun that charges with your camera's batteries and then once there's enough energy in there then you're able to flash and that's why all of that energy is used in a capacitor you wouldn't use that with like a regular battery couldn't okay so it's like a capacitor was used in like those old polaroid disposable cameras where you would like you remember with the flash and you would like pull the thing and then it would go I don't and know what that would, is but oh that's that's it charging yeah and old right. school, but they use them all the time now I mm. mean they're used all the time in TVs radios like when you tune into a radio station that's all capacitor stuff when you change the mm. channel in your TV that's capacitors working clouds are just giant capacitors they store energy in exactly the same way and oh. eventually it's like ah, thunder lightning Oh, <laughs> you know, the things that clouds produce <laughs> anyway, to get to the, the basis of my whole fucking dive off was capacitor discharge is just releasing the energy from a capacitor, adding electrical energy to a capacitor is called charging, releasing the energy from a capacitor is known as discharging. Ooh. So this non shortable electric fence that relied on capacitor discharge, but science, it's cool. Is it mostly used now in like cattle situations yeah or does it are there any prisons that use this kind of thing or anything like that not that i was aware i think any border walls <laughs> god i hope not <laughs> it makes much more sense in terms of cattle because it's a small mm. little psychological shock if mm. a human touched that they'd be like oh that doesn't hurt at all i'm going to continue crawling over this mm. and cross the border <laughs> and you know then it like you i don't think that they would be able to put that kind of voltage to actually cause physical damage. To right. Like they did in the, where was it that you said that in world war one, world war one. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. They had some bad ideas in world war one. <laughs> so I was looking into some crazy government experiments. Okay. So there was something called operation Cirrus, mm-hmm. which was in the late 1940s. The U S attempted to divert the path of a hurricane by seeding it with dry ice. Okay. So after pouring 180 pounds of dry ice into a hurricane moving east into the Atlantic, the hurricane suddenly changed directions and collided with Savannah, Georgia, killing at least one person and causing over $200 million of damages. Uh-huh. And this led to the UN's Environmental Modification Convention, which banned weather-changing experiments conducted as a means of war. Uh-huh. 
So this was something that we actually did. Like we threw a bunch of dry ice into a hurricane and it actually like really changed it. And it taught us like we can affect worldwide weather. And the idea that like governments were trying this and we had to be like, let's not even go down this road. Yeah. Because similarly, there was something called Project Mercury and Project Volcano which is in the late 80s and early 90s. And during that, the Russian military detonated nuclear weapons underground with the goal of disturbing tectonic plates and electromagnetic fields as a weapon. And four experimental attempts actually happened. It's just fucking crazy how much we think that, like the more that we understand, the more we try to manipulate, Mm -hmm. but then are also trying to combat those problems that we cause. Right. Like, why would you want to fucking cause tectonic plates to shift as a weapon as a weapon but it's like but (laughs) don't you think at some point you're not going to be able to control it no i know i just the audacity man the the insane audacity of that plan i mean on the flip side of that because that was the russians we had a program in the 60s called starfish prime where instead of putting nukes underground we detonated six nuclear weapons at high altitude to test how it affected earth's magnetic field Luckily, the magnetosphere snapped back into place, which caused a huge electromagnetic pulse as a side effect that slammed downward onto the Earth. But, like, they were testing nukes underground. We were testing nukes, like, trying to fuck with the magnetosphere. Like, if we actually broke the magnetosphere somehow, then Earth would have its atmosphere blown away by the cosmic winds the way Mars has, and we would have destroyed Earth. So (laughs) the magnetosphere is not something that you want to fuck with, and... That's what both the Russians and we were doing over a long period of time. Yeah. And I would imagine things like that are still happening to some degree. I mean, maybe we'll know in about 20 years when they announce that we did them. It's all top secret covert op bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Starfish Prime and Project Mercury. I want to be the person that just comes, not has anything to do with the projects, just comes up with the names. Because there are some great (laughs) names for these like bogus projects. Operation Cirrus. Yeah. So you're talking about weaponizing the actual physical earth. And it was cool to look into our crazy history as humans of weaponizing animals. You want mm. to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> this is fucking nuts. Because the piranha were you, they were supposed to be weapons, right? That was mm-hmm. the whole point. It all comes so. back to like us trying to be at war with each other. So it suggested that early Paleolithic humans were using insects in battle 10,000 years ago or even earlier. So at the time, humans often lived in caves and rock shelters and stuff. So an enemy might want to hit them with some kind of an animate object, but if you throw that, it doesn't necessarily hit its mark. However, a hive of bees (laughs) was another matter altogether. Perhaps an angry swarm that's pacified by smoke could, you know, push people out of their homes and out into the open where they're Mm. vulnerable, that kind of thing. Then there's like war horses, that kind of shit. That's, they've been used as early as 4,000 BCE. But then moving a little bit earlier, birds as incendiary weapons. What? Hey, oh. (laughs) So you think of like carrier pigeons? Those Uh, have been used, right? You'd like tie a little note to a mm -hmm. pigeon and have it fly and deliver messages. They do that in Game of Thrones all the time. Mm -hmm. The thinking though was that if you caught the birds that nested within a walled city and then attached fire to them somehow, they would, <laughs> they would return and start an inferno. So there are these ma- manuals from Chinese military folks like from the Tang and Ming ja- dynasties that describe the technique. And Olga of Kiev in the 10th century and Viking Harold Hadraid in the 11th century, they used this tactic and apparently it was successful both times. Wow. Yeah. So they burned down cities because they attacked... Yeah. Like, how do you attack Maybe not burn down a- the entire cities, right, but, but like caused severe damage. an inferno. How do, do you attach fire to a bird without killing the bird? 
and then letting it like did you see their mechanism? I didn't see that specific what did they use as like fire as like torches at the time they yeah, probably well, just put that on there well I had talked about Greek fire which yeah. was like the early flamethrowers and those right. dated back to around zero the year zero totally yeah I didn't look into like the specific <clears throat> like <throat> what they used for explosives back right. in the 10th and 11th centuries but that <laughs> they tied them to the birds and flew them in there that's such an awesome idea yeah it's smart. Let's move forward to the American Civil War. In 1862, Union forces in Texas attempted a particularly cruel scheme to, quote, mow down guys in gray like ripe wheat <laughs> using two mules. They wanted to do this. Two mules. Okay. So Captain James Graydon ordered his men to pack a number of 24-pound howitzer shells into wood boxes and then lash them to the backs of a pair of mules. When they were within 150 yards of the unsuspecting Confederates, the Federals lit the fuses, gave each animal a hard smack on the booty, and ran for their own lines. The mules then turned and followed their drivers instead of going towards the Confederates. Oh, no. <laughs> so oh, an observer no. wrote at the time that, Every one of them shells exploded on time, but there were only two casualties. The mules. That's somebody talking at the time. Right. They said them shells, so I'm assuming they had a slack-jawed yokel voice. So anyway, but unexpectedly, though, it did benefit the Union Army because the explosion stampeded a herd of Confederate beef cattle and horses into the Union's lines, which deprived the Confederates of much-needed provisions. Oh, man. Yeah. That is such a So they a were like, we up. didn't get you guys blown up. Instead, we got our mules blown up, but all y'all shit is like, all, all over Like, all of our now. food went to the enemy. Right. <laughs> now just, they're well-fed and we're starving. I mean, ba- like, part of the consequence of war is just a lot of hullabaloo caused, <laughs> right? I want that as a title. <laughs> okay, so, and then you were talking about using the, like, the the tectonic plates and all that shit, mm-hmm. fucking with that. Did you say that was around World War Two? That was, the tectonic plates thing was in 1987. Oh, okay, so that was recent, because I'm about to dive into some World War Two shit. This is when it was like, anything goes, all bets are off, <laughs> yeah. everything's on the table. Except for mustard gas. That we decided <laughs> after World War One, no more. Oh, <laughs> 1941 England, right? Mm-hmm. Germans have already subjugated half of Europe. The, uh, how do you say it? Luftwaffe? L-U-F-T-W-A-F-F-E. The Luftwaffe was pounding yeah. London from the air. They, yeah, the, the German air uh, military. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Okay. Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe was pounding London from the air, and the German U-boats were inflicting terrible losses along the Allied shipping routes. So then the British Special Operations Executive at the time came up with this ridiculous plan of using actual rat carcasses that were then stuffed with explosives their plan was to infiltrate German coal supplies with these rat bombs in the hope that the rats would be shoveled into boilers along with the coal, Ooh. whereupon the heat would detonate bombs. And oh. if successful, of course, German infrastructure could have been severely damaged. But instead, of course, the Germans found out pretty quickly. And oh, man. Yeah. Well, I just love the idea of like, so they're just going like, Rats often just get in the way yeah. of this coal shoveling situation. Totally. And so... The mentality going into it. Yeah, of being the strategic like practicality of, yeah. speaking, Practically speaking, mm-hmm. there's a ton of rats everywhere. What if they just, you know, shovel the rats mm-hmm. in with the coal and there happen to be bombs there? But mm-hmm. the BBC did note that the German military leaders were like super fascinated by it. And they, the mm-hmm. rats were displayed <laughs> in, in like German military schools and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it actually led them to like search their coal supplies to make sure there weren't any rat bombs. Wow. So maybe there was their own little you know psychological warfare yeah there. it's like like and you then, were talking about being freaked out by bed bugs if i were shoveling coal i'd be like are there any rats in here i know are there any bomb rats again that would be like the one case scenario like there was one case of a rat bomb and i uh, <laughs> yeah. you know we're checking every, every rat every in the city 
Well, it's also th- interesting to think that the dead rats were supplied by this like London supplier who was under the misconception that they were being used for like study at London University. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he later discovered like, oh, they weren't going to dissect these and learn. They were just trying to blow shit up. Oh, God. Well, and then like the, the Soviets, though, they kind of jumped on this this rat bomb idea, but in a different way. So in 1942, Soviet forces used rats, but trying to infect them with tularemia. They didn't want to infect them with anthrax or the, the actual bubonic plague that the rats right. were known for because that would have been too risky for the Soviets. Funny you say that. Uh-huh. One of the crazy government experiments I read about was that in the 80s, the Soviet Union experimented with weaponizing the plague. Yeah. And they did. They actually were going to put it into warheads and launch them towards the United States. And they had a powdered form of the bacterial agent Yersinia pestis, which is the original plague. And they had gotten pretty far along before the Berlin Wall fell and they decided oh, wow. not to do it. Oh, that's interesting because like, yeah, if, for in this case, they mm-hmm. didn't want to infect them with the plague. They're like, those risks are way too great. But to I guess by the 80s, us. they were like, well, you know what? Fuck or maybe it. they felt like, they, well, there was a way to combat it. Maybe. In a, in a way that, or like control it. Who knows? Again, like just human fucking. But it's good, at least for a time, they were like, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's still the same thing. So, like I said, it was tularemia, which is a bacterial infection, but it causes like weakness, fever, mm. and ulcers, that kind of stuff. Just makes but, your army super weak and ineffective. Yeah. Wow. They were fighting Friedrich von Paulus's troops during the Battle of Stalingrad. <laughs> Approximately 50% of the German soldiers. Soldiers who entered the Soviet camps after that were suffering symptoms from that. Yeah. But of course, eventually the disease crossed the front line and Soviet troops were infected as mm-hmm. well. That's the thing with those infectious diseases. You can't. You can't really contain them. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Unless you're giving like a vaccine to every single one of your troops and you yeah. know that they don't have a vaccine. Yeah. Then maybe you could pull something off. Ah, just so fucking risky. I mean, I, totally that to me, it's, it's almost like just go with the regular bombs, right? So we, we talked about <laughs> rat know. bombs. Let's talk about cat bombs. Let's talk about cat bombs. Also in World War II was the grand old age of the dive bomber. So Ooh. dive bombers were used especially to attack like high value targets such as ships, but even experienced pilots often, you know, miss their mark. So military engineers were thinking how can we you know improve accuracy in such a limited amount of time so according to this book called a higher form of killing there was a project that the office of strategic services which is the forerunner of the cia central intelligence agency had this idea that cats hated water so much that if you dropped a cat bomb into the general vicinity of a ship, the cat would instinctively guide the bomb to the deck below in order to avoid getting wet. <laughs> of course, how a 10-pound at most cat could guide a 500-pound bomb is they didn't really discuss. 500-pound bomb? Yeah. <laughs> they, it wasn't like a tiny rat bomb? No. They were talking about like these giant bombs, at least in the oh. article that I was I was reading. And then it's like... Yeah. Like a chain attached to the tail well, and he like rolls it down. It never even got past the testing stage because <laughs> generally a cat is going to lose its fucking consciousness when it's plunging towards the earth at terminal velocity. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, I mean, cats are, you've ever heard of the term herding cats? Uh-huh. It's for a reason. You can't control these things. No, it's just it's like just any creature passes being like, out. we're going to throw, we're going <laughs> to drop God. you like at terminal velocity. You're going to stay awake and then swim your way onto a boat with this bomb attached. It was just it's, like lot of assumptions wow it's supposed to hit the water and then the does the bomb float it doesn't just sink and bring the cat down it didn't get past the testing stage <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know why i keep trying to question that's it. probably why like, it didn't okay get this is why they didn't do it <laughs> yeah man oh god okay fuck oh rats cats and bats i love it <sighs> there's so many like um 
people are crazy. People are fucking crazy. Uh Okay, so towards the end of the war, this American dental surgeon, (laughs) that tells you where this idea is coming from. Dental. Okay. A dental surgeon Uh named Lyle S. Adams tried to come up with a way to bring Japan to its knees. But instead of like bird bombs, like we were talking about before, he proposed using bats, millions of bats, (laughs) specifically the hibernating Mexican free-tailed bats. Okay. They wanted to attach incendiary charges to each of its legs. The bats would be packed by the thousands into a special bomb casings and then dropped over the target. They wanted to release this over fucking Osaka Bay. Okay. And then (laughs) the idea was that they would drop them. And then when dawn came, the bats would go off in search of some nice dark place to sleep, like a big, nice building. And then later, the little, like the detonators on their legs would detonate the bombs Uh and all hell would, would break loose. This was known as Project X-Ray. <laughs> and the initial results were mixed. Are you surprised to hear that? I'm not surprised yeah. to hear that. I'm surprised to hear that there were initial results indicating that there were further results. <laughs> right. Well, and some of these, the initial results were like accidental bat releases. They'd uh-huh. be like, fuck, the bats are loose already. Yeah. You know, like, oh, and then they're like, millions they're of going bats. around <laughs> our fucking buildings right. and finding a cool God, dry spot. Just so ridiculous. Oh, but man. yeah, the project was was pulled eventually when the atomic bomb came along. They didn't need man, bat bombs. How many projects were in the world? And they were like, I've devoted my life yeah. to this. And then it's like the bomb happened. And now it's like, why am I even working yeah, on this? Yeah, we talked about our abandoned invasion plan. Because they also were trying to use pigeons as like missile guidance systems. Okay. So again, this carrier pigeon idea. But they would like tap their little beaks onto a target on a screen. And they would that would control the direction. If they, you know, they, would, they were basically <laughs> training these pigeons to like peck at shapes or projected images. So that they could be trained to find targets right wow. so of course those like that idea was shelved when radar came along yeah I was so like carrier like pigeons in place imagery. of radar bat bombs in place of atomic bombs <laughs> fucking nuts kind of a nasty thing that the russians did in 41 was after the germans had invaded they they started using anti-tank dogs that were trained to seek food that had been hidden underneath tanks. Oh, no. So they were fitted with a special fabric harness that contained 10 to 12 kilograms of high explosives in four four different pouches. And then at the top of the harness was a spring-loaded trigger pin. So when the dog would crawl under the tank, the trigger pin was depressed, which would set off a detonator and explode Mm. the the tank. So were we keeping our food on the bottom side of tanks? Is that like a That's how they train them. That's like, oh, they train, I got you, yeah. They train the dogs to find food underneath Uh, the tanks. And then they go to the American tanks expecting food. The German tanks. The German tanks expecting food. Right, so they, after that, then they were starved for weeks, as Mm -hmm. as one does. And Mm. they, they were actually credited with destroying 300 German tanks but what was happening is they weren't trained under petrol-engined German tanks. They were trained under diesel-engined Soviet tanks. So the results were a little bit mixed because they were trained to find their food under the Soviet tanks. Oh. So a lot of times they were also trying to find food under the Soviet tanks in battle. Oh. So they you know, they might have fucked with a lot of Germans, but they also fucked with a lot of Soviets. Yeah, because when you starve an animal, and that's its basis of training... They're going to go for <laughs> what they know. Yeah, yeah. well, I would have thought that they would have like captured a German tank or something and then used that to train the dogs. But... Mm-hmm. I guess, oops. Yeah, <laughs> oops. Um, oh man. Well, I, you were saying like they are credited with destroying three hundred tanks. I would say they're credited with murdering three hundred dogs. Yeah. 
Oh, totally. My I mean, God. As with all of these stories, there's no fucking regard for that. Like in the yeah. Cold War, they, there was also talk of using chickens. <laughs> <laughs> this was considered by the British Civil Service. They wanted to bury a seven-ton nuclear landmine in West German soil as a preventative measure against any you know encroaching Red Army forces. But nuclear physicists weren't sure how to keep the the landmine at the right temperature, so they're like. What if we put these chickens on there and kept them warm like eggs? What? That's exactly right. Like that is what the plan was. It was never real. Incubating landmines with fucking chickens. Can you imagine? How many chickens died? The plan was never realized. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> because again, like when you're at the, you're like back to the drawing board. You're like, fuck. How do we keep yeah. this warm? Well, take a little tip from nature. Chickens yeah. keep their eggs nice and toasty. I mean, up until car bombs were a thing, it's like they used camels and shit in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just crazy to think that people are like, we're just gonna. I, I would use the term exploit our right. natural resources and yeah. animal friends, but at the same time, it's like. You know, all's fair in love and war. Well, it's like you hear stuff like that or like the cat idea, and you'd like to say there are no dumb ideas. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there are. There are just dumb I mean, Sometimes there's dumb ideas. But that's why I can at least say, like, it was an idea and nothing more. When they yeah, tell me, yeah, like, yeah. it didn't, you know, the test stages were a little murky. It's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, you fuckface, this is the worst idea ever. Yeah, I'm surprised we know that they even tested those things. Yeah. You know? Even as recently as fucking 2003, Morocco offered the U.S.-led effort in Iraq these, like, landmine-seeking monkeys. Of course, the U.S. declined the offer, thank God. But, you know, the idea that they... How crazy would that be if it's like, then the fleet of U.S.-owned <laughs> mind-sniffing monkeys. We've got yeah. them all, like, b- bring the heroes right. parade back. Exactly. And I'm, sh- I'm, like, to be honest, I don't, it was probably less of a, like, no, that's so inhumane and cruel to the monkeys. And more like, that's fucking dumb. We've got so much of a budget. Yeah. We don't need any, you know. Yeah. Last but not least, apparently, did you know that the U.S. Navy employs dolphins and sea lions for seeking underwater mines? No. Apparently that's a thing. Okay. And so when I found that detail, this was after like my huge dive that I did. I was like, note to self, find a way to talk about Navy dolphins in the future. <laughs> so guys, just so you know, hold me accountable. We will we will return to this. Okay. We're going to have to, well, Navy maybe, maybe in the Jaws episode. Yeah. Just some more sea shit. You know, like 100 episodes from now when we do Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> 100 <laughs> episodes. Science. So at one point, the fish are all attacking, and people just start, like, opening fire, shooting at the fish, mm-hmm. you know, with guns. And I was thinking about the phrase, shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> Lovely segue. I-, I looked into how easy it is to shoot fish in a barrel. Mythbusters did an episode on this. The reason it's super easy to shoot fish in a barrel doesn't have to do with the shooting of the fish themselves, but the concussive force left by the force of the bullet slamming into the water kills all the fish in the barrel. Oh, that makes sense. So a 9mm gunshot delivers about 100 G-force units of pressure into the barrel. So if you shoot, like, all the fish are dead because fish are extremely sensitive to the slightest water pressure change because they have a specialized organ called the lateral line, which detects water displacement force and direction. Mm -hmm. So basically you explode this organ. Wow. When there's a severe pressure change really quickly. If you shoot at fish in the in the water, you may not actually like hit them with the bullet, right. but you'll probably kill them. Gotcha. That, that's They use that term to say something's easy, right? Right. Okay. Right. Right. Be, but I think conceptually it's more like it's easy because where are the fish going to go? You, just, you point at them and you shoot. Right. You know, there's a limited barrel. That's what I thought. I thought it was... But the that, reality of it is that like you would actually kill all the fish, not because... It, it, I think they found that it's like you have a 10% chance of actually shooting the fish, but then 
all the fish are dead in the barrel right, anyway. because of that. I, interesting. Additionally, cool. water is incredibly good at stopping bullets. And even the most powerful guns can only get bullets about three feet deep. Okay. I mean, well, that explains why in so many of our favorite action movies, people mm-hmm. are like, well, I'm going to dive into this water now. And then, like, but, bad guys are shooting at them and can't get them. Yeah, but even then you'll see, like, bullets sh- zooming past them right. underwater and you, like, see, like, the streams of it. And, and it's like... In reality, it'd be three feet. It would be three, three be, like, feet. And if you're below that, right. then you're pretty much bulletproof. It's not quite as dramatic if no. you're like, great, all I have to do is get three feet below and <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. All right, I'm... Bu- Movie <laughs> over. Yeah. Or it's like, I feel like you could have a sequence where somebody's just at three feet below low and a bullet comes in and it like stops like right in front of their <laughs> right. eyeball they should do that <laughs> yeah. like wait for it so, like shh. establish early on in the movie that it only it's three feet before right. a bullet is stopped and then have that be like this pivotal moment mm. like i can't go any farther okay. oh, <laughs> yeah, God. exactly great note so they use a breathalyzer in this movie and since it was the late 70s i was like when was the breathalyzer invented and how does it work? <laughs> so it was invented in the 20s during Prohibition. Oh. And it was for housewives to test whether or not their husbands had been drinking. What? Mm-hmm. Not even for drunkards. No. Like drunk driving. Well, it, right. It was for drunkards, but not for drunk driving. Right. And it wasn't really widely used until the 50s and 60s. The way it works is like in the way that you can test amounts of alcohol from urine or blood, there's a certain amount of alcohol that your lungs excrete into Mm -hmm. your breath. And so as you blow, there's a certain amount of alcohol per Mm -hmm. millimeter in the air. And then the breathalyzer analyzes the alcohol content. And based on that, it can tell how much relative to your blood. I mean, it's awesome to know how it just physically works, but also to know like the like why it was originally invented. It wasn't. It was during Prohibition. Right. Which I I thought was like, of course it was. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. How do we crack down on people having fun? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's like a lot of stuff that can throw the test off and cause false positives. Oh, hell yeah. You know, like. So much Banaka. Banaka. <laughs> it is like mouthwash is like the only thing that can mess with yeah. readings, but it does dissipate really quickly. And they actually have like a couple of different types of breathalyzers. There's the field test, which is a lot more inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And then they have like the test. when people have to like touch their nose and. Walk yeah, that's in a where they do like shit. more than just the breathalyzer gotcha. is because. And then. They'll take you into the station if you, and they'll have you blow into like a desktop breathalyzer, which right. is a lot more accurate and a much bigger machine. Little anecdotal story. I had a, a good friend of mine who unfortunately got a DUI, as some good people do, <laughs> made mistakes in their 20s. But I know that part of her thing was she had to have, like, there was a breathalyzer attached to her ignition in some fashion that she couldn't turn the car on until she blew into it oh. and, you know, tested under the limit. And then got a and DUI? The- no, that was part of her punishment, oh, duh, Goober. Duh. I'm like, wait, she... Part of the, the reason why she got the DUI is because she was like, fuck you, the man. I'm gonna well, I thought it was, like, it was like, and it gave her a false pu- reading. Oh, and no. so then it started no, the car. No, she couldn't physically turn the car on man. until she blew into a breathalyzer that was under the legal limit. And then she could turn the car on and drive That's the car. an interesting technique. I mean, it's fucking smart, but yeah. it's also like, nanny state. Am right. I right? Or should we just allow, like, have that be mandatory on every car? I don't know. That right. sounds we like an ethical We should definitely make it possible for people to drink and drive. That's not at all what I'm saying, but 
to not let someone even turn their car on without having to go through a test because it oh, takes that's time. that's a good point is that like you can turn your car on and not drive it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you have to give people some benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I, yeah, laws yeah, exist yeah, for yeah. a reason. If you break them, you get right. punished. But like to be like, you're not even going to be able to operate your thing without. Yeah. Us I guess sure. I was just thinking about how like we now have laws that you have to have yeah. seatbelts or wear those seatbelts and stuff like right. that. And I guess this could be an extension of that. But you're right. Yeah. It's like you get a ticket and worse, obviously, if you are drunk and do something stupid. Yeah. You're right. It's also like there's been times where people have had something to drink and they still drive. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that's where it gets murky. But yeah, it, I just thought it was I thought it was cool that they that that was even a thing. And if you have a fucking DUI, I have less of an issue with that being part of your car. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like specifically after you've been proven to do this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that makes more sense mm-hmm. than just for every car. Every it's car. like, I don't even drink. Sweet I have 16. to blow into this. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have very good lung capacity. I guess no driving for me. Oh, man. Any favorite lines for you, or is that everything? For favorite lines, I had... The main characters are like environmentalists, and at some point with the piranhas, they're such a pain in their ass that... Literally. <laughs> they, they say the line... We'll pollute them to death, mm-hmm. which I just love that it's like they're environmentalists. They have to pollute. Oh, God. Oh, right. Pollute. You looked at that as being like how interesting that they're doing yeah. that. And I was looking <laughs> at it. And I was like, are they trying to like, what? I don't know. I, I think looking into what this movie has to say is probably a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of stopped myself while we were where I was right. like, what is the yeah. what is the end of How close was this to Watergate? Yeah. What, yeah. What, yeah what, I'm trying to read between the lines here, but really it's like half naked chicks <laughs> yeah. swimming around. What was happening societally in 1978 that caused this movie to happen? Jaws. Jaws, Jaws was happening and that's why they needed to come up with this. <laughs> that's exactly it. Oh boy. Well, anyway, thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah. Next week we're doing Mission Impossible, the oh. first one. It's going to be great. Not the Not TV, the original TV series. The I meant the first Tom Cruise The first one. Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie. If you could rate and review us on iTunes, that would be wonderful. Yeah, man. You can find us at Oh That's a Thing on Facebook and Twitter. And Instagram now. And Instagram. That's a new thing. Mm-hmm. Some of the cool things that we've been learning about, we figured, why don't we just like share it directly with you guys? There's cool images. There's cool videos. And then if you want to get in touch with us individually, I'm at It's a Joy Amia on Twitter, Insta. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And have a wonderful week. Thanks, guys. Bye.